Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show to help you understand your money. We have some neat things this week. Not only are we going to look at the stock market for last week, but we're going to talk about how do you value non-publicly traded securities. In the legislative update, we're going to talk about some changes happening to the advertising rules for investment advisors, some things you want to pay attention to. The Plan Your Prosperity segment sees the revisit of the 12 Days of Christmas price index. And here's a spoiler alert. There's some changes because it's a pandemic year. And then finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, I'm going to tell you about something that happened to me last week and why it's very important that you understand the gritty details of your insurance policies. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market report for the week ending December 11th, 2020. And basically, all of the stock market indexes went slightly down. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down for the week a little more than half a percent, while the S&P 500 went down a little less than 1%. The NASDAQ basically split the difference, down 0.69%. Even gold dropped at 1.4% down. West Texas Intermediate Crude was the only winner for the week, I think probably off of vaccine hopes, up 2.19%. The 10-year Treasury yield dropped by 5.78%, and the dollar was almost flat up 0.02%. That aggregate bond fund that we follow was up 0.37%, which makes sense because the 10-year Treasury yield was slightly down. Now, I read an interesting article this week talking about valuing non-publicly traded REITs. A REIT is a Real Estate Investment Trust, R-E-I-T, They're called REIT by slang. And it was talking about how very difficult it can be for an investor to understand what those positions are actually worth. If you followed the REIT's history, you know they were very popular until the real estate bubble and then the financial crash of 2008. And at that point, a lot of the REITs that were out there really started languishing and, quite frankly, haven't done a great job coming back. Now, the non-publicly traded REIT is different than, say, a real estate mutual fund or ETF because it doesn't trade on a public exchange. Instead, the company promises to redeem shares. And one of the big selling points prior to 2008 was, well, they've never not done that, which works right until the day that they do refuse to redeem the shares. So a lot of people are trapped holding positions right now that they can't sell. 
Well, over the last several years, they've changed the rules as to how the value of these REITs has to be reported. Because since they don't publicly trade, the companies were listing them having the same value as they did back when the people bought them. And the regulators came in and said, no, you really can't do that. You have to make an adjustment to the value that's more of a fair market value cost. So a lot of them are worth a lot less than that, even though you still can't sell them. So just because you see the value of it adjusting on your statement doesn't mean you can sell the position. Now, I don't know whether buying a non-publicly traded REIT is good for your investment portfolio or not. What I would like to advise you to do is anytime someone recommends that you make a purchase of a security that's slightly complicated. Maybe it doesn't trade publicly. Maybe it's got some complicated characteristics. I want you to be sure that you understand what the details of those complications are. So it's all well and good to say, oh, don't worry about it, we'll buy it back. You need to question it a little bit. Are you, you know, what sort of a guarantee do I have that you will go ahead and make this purchase back? Because a lot of people saw the great yield on the non-publicly traded REITs and it looked like they'd make a nice amount of income and so they bought it. Remember, high yield is generally a sign you're taking risk. So when an investment's offering a really great return in yield, you need to find out what the risks are and you need to try to understand them the best you can. And then the other suggestion that I would make is to always diversify. Yeah, if we knew what was going to go up the most every year, we'd all buy just that, right? It would make sense, but you don't know. And this year, the REITs that had been issued after 2008, because there's actually still a market for these, ran into trouble again with the pandemic. So there's a whole new round of non-publicly traded REITs that are having some liquidity issues right now. Well, who could have seen this year coming 18 months ago? So the way you get around that is by diversifying. Even if it looks great, you don't ever put all your eggs in one basket. You try to make sure that you have a balance. You try to understand the risk. And that way, you're less likely to get hurt by something if things go wrong. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And really, the biggest legislative concerns this week don't have a lot to do with financial legislation. There was a one-week spending bill passed that kept the government from closing down on Friday, and everyone's still trying to come together to create a COVID relief package. Now, if there isn't some kind of COVID relief, there may be economic and financial consequences of down the road from that that we'll have to report when we talk about the market or the economic data or just when you're trying to figure out how everything's really going to work in 2021. But for right now, those issues aren't specifically related to the financial services industry, so I don't typically talk a lot about them. What I do want to talk about today are some changes that potentially will be occurring this month to the rules about how investment advisors can advertise. 
Now, I'm going to need to get a little weedy here to make sure that you understand that an investment advisor and a stockbroker are not the same person. They're regulated by different agencies and they're regulated in different ways. So there've been some things that stockbrokers have been allowed to do that investment advisors have not been allowed to do. And on first glance, that seems terrifically unfair. And I'm an investment advisor, and, and it's been a little frustrating to see that the person up the street who has a bigger name on their sign than I do can do things that I can't. But remember, it, it's easy to kind of be critical of the brokers, but brokers have back office support that makes sure that what they're saying is really accurate. For the most part, investment advisory firms are their own compliance team, and they don't have external audits outside of the securities agencies coming in. So the rules around what an investment advisor could and couldn't do have always been a little bit stricter because there aren't quite as many internal controls. Still, that being said, these limitations on advertising have made it really difficult because the things that investment advisors have not been able to provide are client testimonials, past specific investment recommendations, and portfolio performance. So I want to take each of the three of those and, and break it down because my opinion is actually a little bit different depending upon what you're talking about. The idea that I haven't been able to use testimonials and that investment advisors can't use testimonials is really difficult because think about it. When you're trying to decide what plumber to hire, you, you start asking your friends, hey, who do you like? And now, you're, you know, my clients can talk without my knowledge of it, but I can never put anything onto a website saying, well, this client is happy. Now, the argument on the other side is, do people really think that an investment advisor is going to put up a testimonial from someone who isn't happy? So the idea is when you read pages and pages of glowing testimonials, I mean, you, you should know that you're only seeing those people who are happy, but it can be a little bit misleading. And I'm a huge fan of transparency. So I think that when they do allow a, a modifying of the testimonial rules, that it's going to make it a little bit easier to get positive feedback. But I think they're going to put some things in place that are going to try to keep the feedback across the board. For instance, what I've heard is if you have a social media page and someone puts up a bad review, you're not supposed to take it down. And there's ways and services where they will track all of the social media movement so you can prove whether or not you've done that. But still, the ability to have testimonials is going to be a, a really useful thing. Then the kinds of investment recommendations that you're making. You know, if I'm going to work with someone, I'm going to want to know what they're going to do. And so the easiest way to be confident that they're really going to do what they say they are is to see them say it in a public space. Because if they just say it to me in a meeting, I might not have as much confidence that they're really going to do it as I would if I saw it posted on a website or on a social media page. So I think being able to 
talk about specific investments is is probably a good thing. And on the surface, I don't see a lot of ways that can be abused. Now, remember what we were talking about in the last section with kind of exotic investments. Um, consumers need to be aware and they need to only work with investments they feel comfortable with, only work with advisors who put them in, in investments that they feel comfortable with. But still, I, I really think that's a good thing. Then the third section is portfolio performance. And on the surface, I mean, that's probably the number one question that I get asked when I'm talking only about the investing side of what I do, which is, how did you do? And, you know, being able to answer that accurately and carefully is very useful. But I want to remind you of a few things as these rules change and it will be easier for advisors to put up their numbers there's some things you need to look at. The first thing is be sure that any returns that you're looking at are the same as your own risk tolerance. So if someone puts portfolio performance results on a website, you need to make sure was that an aggressive portfolio? Was it a conservative portfolio or was it moderate? And then what level of risk are you taking you don't want to be a conservative investor, see numbers that are associated with an aggressive portfolio, even if those numbers are accurate, and assume that you'll get that return. So I see a lot of complication here in reporting numbers, even if they, and I'm sure there will be regulation around it. But even if there isn't regulation around it, when I'm trying to create my own package of things, I'm going to have to be really careful that what somebody sees is actually what's going on. And if you're looking at numbers, if you're considering working with someone, be absolutely sure that the risk levels match. The other thing you have to be careful of is the timeline of the returns. I saw someone post returns and, and they were just staggering. But in the very, very fine print, it gave the dates of those returns. And what this person did was they gave returns and they would start the date after a market drop and they would end the date right before the next market drop. And so they actually were showing portfolio returns that were never negative, absolutely never negative. And yet the market had been very volatile during the time horizon. I'm in the industry and I had to read the fine print before I finally figured out that this person just gave goofball dates, not, not any sort of a date you'd think, like February 11th to June 17th. Well, you know, that's not helpful and that's not what you thought they did. So as you're looking at returns, find the dates. Then go to another stock chart, like on a free website. Look at the S&P 500, look at the Dow Jones, look at the NASDAQ, and see how it did for that period of time. That's going to give you a better idea as to whether or not the returns you're seeing are appropriate to what the market gave. Because, you know, when the market's going up like gangbusters, we're all making money. But you want to make sure that the dates that you're seeing aren't cherry-picked and you want to see how the performance was in both up and down markets before you make a choice. So I'm a fan of these changes, but I think they needed to be taken with a grain of salt. And as always, the investor needs to be absolutely diligent and careful. 
Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And several years ago, I discovered the PNC Christmas Price Index. And PNC is a financial company. I will include the link to their site because it's really cool. You need to check this out, both on the information about the website as well as on my, um, my Facebook page and my Twitter account so that if you're interested in looking this up and having some fun with it, you'll have what you need. So basically what PNC started doing was pricing out the cost of the 12 days of Christmas. And the price includes all of the repetitions. So in other words, it's how much you would pay for the entire song. If you sang the song and you gave the gifts so that on the 12th day of Christmas, you are re-giving all of those gifts you gave the other 11 days. And sadly, in 2020, the overall price, they call it the total Christmas price index or CPI with a slightly different definition, is $16,168.14, and it is down 58.5% from last year. And that's because of what happens on those final days of Christmas. In 2020, because of the pandemic, there are no longer nine ladies dancing, 10 lords a-leaping, 11 pipers piping, or 12 drummers drumming available because so many music venues have had to shut down, the dance companies have shut down, and so when you take those final four, and they're the biggies, costs out of the 12 days of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas is considerably cheaper this year than it was last year. Now, within the gifts that remain, obviously things get a little bit more expensive, but one of the biggest increases was the price of the two turtle doves. And turtle doves are up 50% from last year, and, and who knows why that is. But the price of a turtle dove has gone up 50% over where it was in 2019. Now, interestingly, the five gold rings on this index cost $945. However, there's a real sense that in the way we sing the song modernly, we don't have the same meaning of five gold rings as they did when they wrote the song. Five gold rings, we, we think about like wedding bands, right? But originally, they were ringed pheasants. So five golden ringed pheasants, which is actually much more in keeping with the value of the gifts the way that they've been described. So when you're trying to play some Christmas trivia with your family over Zoom this holiday season, you might tell them that five golden rings might not be something that they wanted quite as much as they had in the past. So last year, 
the cost of Christmas, the 12 days of Christmas, was $38,993.59, and it was up just a tiny bit over what the cost had been in 2018. When you go to the website, all of these prices and all of this information is listed out. But there's two more things that I want you to go to this website to learn about because, again, there's really neat stuff. You may have heard me talk about the stock market game before. I know I've talked about it in some podcasting that I did in the spring to actually it's Facebook Live to help parents who are trying to help their kids when school wasn't open. But the stock market game is an opportunity for kids to learn about the stock market. And previously, it was only available within a classroom setting. But because of the pandemic, they've opened up the stock market game so that parents can sign their kids up independently and all of the teacher's resources are available and the whole idea is to create a stock portfolio and track it. And yes, the criticism is it's short term, but you know, with kids, you've got to do something to get their attention. And kids really get engaged in the stock market and doing stock research when they play this game. I've been a judge of it several years in my local Oklahoma um, economic, oh, um, Oklahoma Council on Economic Education. So if you're interested in that, there's a link off the PNC Christmas, but the website is stockmarketgame.org, and you can go there directly. The final thing that PNC put on their website this year that's really, really awesome is at the very bottom of the page, it's do-it-yourself craft projects where both kids and adults can make crafts related to the 12 days of Christmas and give them as gifts. So some of it's pretty pretty advanced. Um, a few of the gifts would work well with little children. Many of them will work well with, with slightly older kids or even adults. But like you can do 11 Piper's Piping Gingerbread Cookies. And that's something you can do with any age. There's 12 crochet drum ornaments. Day eight were peppermint milk bath bottles, and I'm not really sure how that ties, but it's really neat. And so in a year that things have been kind of tricky and not very much fun, PNC has outdone themselves yet again. And so I really recommend that you take some time, go to the site. If you just Google PNC um, 12 Days of Christmas, you'll find it if you can't find the link to this and it's really worth your time. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy section of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. So if you would like to submit a question to the show, I want you to go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and you'll find the link where you can submit your question. Then I'll be in contact with you, get some more information, and we can answer it on the air in a way that's educational for people, not investment advice. But what I want to do today, rather than answering a question that I received, is tell you a story about what happened to me last week and how important it is to actually understand the details of what your insurance policies pay and what they don't. So last Tuesday, 
I was working in my home office as usual, and I got a call from the maintenance person from our condo that's down on the Texas coast. It's a very small condo. You know, the biggest thing it has going for it is it's on the beach. And I love it. But, you know, the maintenance guy never calls on a Tuesday. So I answered the phone and I said, so what's going on? And he said, well, we're doing the best we can. It's like, uh-oh, doing the best you can with what? And apparently they had sent me an email at midnight the night before that I had missed. The unit above me had a leak in their hot water tank. And so it had been raining in my condo. It, it looks like it actually only rained for about an hour or two because the damage was very immediate and there wasn't a lot of mildew and huge, huge tip of the hat to the maintenance people because they did a fantastic job. And the majority of what I really desperately cared about wasn't damaged. But we lost drywall and we lost kitchen countertops because they were formica with particle board under them. We lost a lot of the ceiling. We lost the mattress. We lost an upholstered chair. So, of course, I immediately made plans to drive down. I actually drove down that night. And while I was driving, I'd written down all of the phone numbers for like my insurance company and ServPro, you know, water mitigation people to try to fix it. And so I got down there, and like I said, it, it, it actually is worse than it looks, which is a weird thing to say, but, but it's not nearly that bad. But I'm talking to the insurance agent, who's very, very nice and very, very helpful. Um, she's a national adjuster, and she said, you know, she took down all the information, and she said, well, I'll need a copy of the property bylaws of your condo complex. And I said, okay, why? She said, well, I don't know whether or not your policy covers the sheetrock or if that's covered by the association. Because condos have weird rules on exactly where ownership starts. Well, I had done some generic reading about um, how the policy is covered, and I thought the sheetrock was covered. Because in general, when you read textbooks, that's what it tends to say. Well, she said that there could have been some issues because it was specifically in Texas and it was possible that the Homeowners Association could say that the sheetrock was theirs. And the reason that would be a problem is with such a small claim, it might have been more difficult to have gotten them to pay for it. Well, Here's the short version. I had no idea there was even the potential of this problem. Now, as it turns out, I was correct. And my sheetrock was covered by my insurance policy. And so I don't have to go back on the whole unit. I don't have to go back on the whole homeowners association. And so it worked out. But I kind of take pride in trying to understand these rules. And I had about, oh eight or nine really scary hours between when I got a hold of the copy of the bylaws and emailed her to him that the night before, and then she got back to me the next day saying, yes, it was covered, because that would have been a tremendous cost. There were also some issues with the insurance that the people who flooded me had, and so there were some problems there as well. And I just wanted to make sure, because if my policy didn't cover it, 
we might have been out of it, out of pocket, and replacing a bunch of drywall is expensive. So here's what you need to do. You need to not only look at your policy, but you need to look at everything around it. If it's in a complex, read the bylaws. Make sure there isn't a hole, that there isn't a gap in coverage somewhere where there might be an issue. Because I thought I had everything nailed down, and at the end of the day, I actually didn't. And it worked out okay. I didn't end up with a problem, but I could have ended up with a problem. And I don't want the same thing to happen to you. I want you to make sure that you have everything and all those details in your policies figured out. And if you don't, figure out how to fix it. That's all the time we have this week. Have a lovely week and I will see you next time. Bye. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.